are in the final week of Complicado right now, which seems crazy that six weeks ago we began this journey of unsolating ourselves to immigration and the refugee crisis. We dug deep into scripture. We listened to stories and statistics, and we even had a seminar that you could go to on a Saturday to hear even more about this important, important crisis. In week one, we unsolated ourselves to the scriptural reality of immigration and the refugee crisis and the imperatives that we carry as Christ followers. We looked at parts of the Bible that would be easier for us to ignore. We went to stories that we typically haven't looked at, and we reminded ourselves that the second most spoken commandment in the Old Testament is to love the stranger. In week two, we began to feel the depth and the enormity of this crisis that the world is facing. We unsolated ourselves to the statistics to understand the crisis itself. We listened to stories and were reminded that each journey is different. In week three, we talked about how and why our words matter, that our words create worlds, that the things that we say create realities. And in week four, we pressed into how we could engage well together as a church And we remind ourselves that these fall justice series, it's a chance for us as a church to say, what does it look like for us to engage well in issues of justice that the world is facing? And then last week in week five, Jason reminded us that we each have this individual call as Christ followers to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And we began to ask the question, what would that look like in our lives? And this morning when I came into the lobby, I stopped by that resource table. And to see that so many of you, as a response to last week, uh, said, what does it look like for me? I want to get involved in some way. It was just heartwarming. And so throughout this series, we've heard from many of you that these statistics and these stories from Scripture and from the news, it's brought us to a new understanding of this crisis and our role as a church and an individual in playing a part in healing it. And I got tapped for the final and the easiest week uh, where we're asking the question, what does God honoring political engagement looks like? It's going to be a really easy, not controversial topic at all. Uh, it's, it's just been a brief sermon prep has. Uh, so a few weeks ago, I sat down to start uh, doing some research and working a little bit on today's message. But before I did that, I started my day the way I do most Mondays by reading the nation's most reliable news source, the Babylon Bee. Uh, which is the Christian version of The Onion, if you've never read it. And the article of the day was this. It was, Politics, Now Our Nation's Fastest Growing Religion. They said this. They said, A study released by Pew Research Center Thursday morning revealed a new fastest growing religion in the country, politics. Unlike many religions that only meet once or twice a week, adherents to the religion of politics worship every day, doing their devotionals in front of Fox News, CNN, or their carefully cultivated Twitter feeds, which hurts just a little as a Twitter user. There is a major sectarian dispute among politics followers as to whether the one true God is a donkey or an elephant, but otherwise their methods of practicing their faith are remarkably similar. And I love this part. According to researchers, worshipers of politics are even more zealous and passionate than members of more traditional religions being more likely to annoy friends and family and blast each other on Facebook over which political God is better. Religious people sometimes go door to door to spread their beliefs, while the political faithful will bother you on Facebook all day long. (laughs) Amen, right? (laughs) Followers of this rapidly growing religion are reportedly preparing to celebrate its high holy day midterm elections. 
The festival includes the selection of new high priests to enact the sacred will of the people, which is usually to get more stuff from the government at the expense of everybody else. It's funny, right? But it also hurts just a little. It hurts just a little. The truth is, is that there has always been this complicated tension when it comes to our faith and our politics. And that's true for almost every one of us. There's always been a complicated tension for us. In 312 AD, Emperor Constantine kneeled before battle and he saw a cross before him. And around the cross were the words, conquer by this. And it just got more complicated after that. Roman officials, they brought their politics into religion and they used their religion to pursue their political goals. Political researchers, Gillespie and Perkins, they said this. They said, in many ways since then, popes and emperors, kings and cardinals, reformers and princes, sects and parliaments have struggled to find ways to coexist. They've often been at odds with one another. Occasionally, they've been united, working towards great, although often horrible, effects. And if it's complicated for people who are literally paid to research it, it's probably not any easier for any of us personally, is it? So one of the reasons why Chris asked me to take on this message is because this is my background. Up until I started seminary four years ago, politics was my life. And we even have a picture. Uh, This is 16-year-old Caitlin. The blonde streak in your hair was really cool at that age, okay? It was really cool. All the band front lead singers had the blonde streak. Uh, So up until four years ago, politics was my background. I started at 16 as a page in the House of Reps. And then at 17, I interned. And at 18, I started working campaigns. And at 20, I was working in state politics. And I was working for PR firms and doing some lobbying. This was my background. And then at 22, I got into seminary. And it got really complicated. Because I started reading scripture, and I started wondering if maybe the things that I thought were biblical responses to political problems maybe weren't as clear as I thought they were. Maybe there was a lot more gray area or a lot more challenges than I ever thought there were before. Maybe scripture actually said things different than what I thought I was standing behind when I thought I was standing behind biblical politics. I initially thought that everything in my political life was untouchable. And then I started reading scripture, and it got complicated. The truth is that this tension, it's not new. And it doesn't actually just date back to 312 AD. The tension between people of faith and their politics goes back to the beginning of time, to kings and to prophets, to judges and rulers. It's all very complicated. But the truth is that politics matters. Politics matters. That all throughout scripture, we're reminded time and time again that politics matter because political policies affect real people. There's a place to write that in your notes because it's so important to remember. If we start no place today, we have to start with the fact that political policies affect real people. That there are real stories and real lives and real outcomes on the line whenever we talk about any political policy or political decisions or political leaders. J. Philip Wogeman puts it this way. He says, politics is terribly important. For good or ill, its effect upon human life and conduct and well-being can scarcely be exaggerated. Politics is important in determining whether people will be at war or at peace. It's fundamental in the distribution of economic goods, including the definition of property rights. 
Politics is basic to the definition of crime and the determination of how it will be punished. It affects the degree to which people will be free to speak, write, or worship. It defines who will be accepted as members of society and who will be placed in the margins. It seriously influences the rearing of children by determining the circumstances of family life and establishing much of the subject matter of their education. It enters into the self-awareness of people, their self-identity, and it projects in large measure their sense of historic destiny and accomplishment. The interface between religion and politics is obviously important. In every culture, religion has been important to people who are most concerned about politics. And politics has been important to people who are most concerned about religion. And not infrequently, those have been the same people. Attitudes of religious people towards politics have varied enormously and vice versa. But the importance of the relationship of the two is crucial. Those who are serious about politics must take religion seriously. Those who are deeply committed religiously must pay attention to politics. And this is especially true when it comes to immigration, isn't it? It's especially true when it comes to immigration and the refugee crisis. We've unsolated the statistics. And we reminded ourselves of the importance of individual stories. So what does political engagement look like when it comes to refugee caps? And what does it look like when it comes to stories like Alan Curdy's in week three or the pastor in week one, these real people's lives who are on the line depending on what the political policy is? What does our engagement in politics even begin to look like? What does it look like when it comes to the stories of people within our denomination? I think of someone who works at our covenant offices who's currently waiting on a long visa process. What does it look like for her? What does it look like when there's visa struggles and deportations and immigration stories from pastors and leaders and people within our community and even within our same town? What does it look like for us to engage well politically in this complex issue? The truth is that we could go a lot of different places when it comes to scripture and the issue of immigration and the refugee crisis and when it comes to how we engage well in those issues politically. Because there's so many examples of God's people either holding their power well or holding their power not so well all throughout scripture. But today I want us to turn to Esther because Esther demonstrates this amazing example of what it looks like to engage politically in ways that are humble and respectful and ultimately successful. And at the same time, there's this foil of this other character, Haman, that shows what it looks like when you engage in politics and your motives aren't right. And so to give a brief summary of Esther, there's a few main characters that you have to be aware of. The first is Esther, and then there's King Xerxes and Queen Vashti and Mordecai and Haman. So during the reign of Xerxes I, king of Persia, the empire is reaching its peak. Economically, they're prosperous. Politically, they're, they're strong. They're rich. They have this military background. And in the third year of his reign, like any king flaunting his wealth would... Xerxes decides to throw this lavish feast. And staying on brand with this lavish, extraordinary rule, Xerxes summons his queen Vashti so that he can show her off to all of the dinner guests. But she doesn't come. And he's afraid that this insubordination will lead to all of the women in the Persian Empire disobeying their husbands. And so Xerxes not so gently dismisses Vashti. And later, his attendant suggests that they should search the empire for another beautiful woman who would become queen. And Chris Harrison wasn't born yet, but the first season of The Bachelor begins. 
all these women are living in this house together. And out of all the women of the first ever season of The Bachelor, Esther is elevated. Esther is elevated by all these other women and by the palace officials and by King Xerxes who chooses to make her queen. And Esther's uncle Mordecai becomes a palace official taking a post by the king's gate. But there's one complicating factor here. And in Esther 2.20, we're informed of this. If you'll turn with me to Esther 2. Esther 2.20, it says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. You see, Esther is a Jewish orphan. She's being raised by her uncle. And she's a woman of the diaspora, which is the scattering of the Jews that occurred after the exile. And some of the Jews had returned back to Judah, but Esther and her family, for some reason, had decided to stay in Persia with another group of Jews. They were strangers in this strange lands. So this woman who was a stranger and in some ways even a refugee has now been brought into an influential space. And soon after her rise to this position, her ability to use this position of power to benefit the rest of the Jews in Diaspora and Persia would be tested. Mordecai, day after day in the palace gates, he won't bow down to Haman, who's the most powerful official in the empire as dictated by King Xerxes. And spoiler alert, this does not go well. This does not go well. It says this in Esther 3, starting in verse 5. It says, Uh, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, which means as they made known to him that Mordecai was Jewish, that he wasn't Persian, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So it's become known that Haman's not a Jew and because, or that Mordecai's not a Jew. And because Haman is angered by Mordecai's actions, he decides that he is going to destroy all the people. This trouble is brewing. This political policy is about to be proposed. That's going to mean death for an entire people group. And the tension begins here. Haman approaches Xerxes with a political power play in Esther 3, starting in verse 11, or starting in verse 8, going to verse 11. It says this, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamithadah, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as seems good to you. The decree goes out after that. It's issued in every as a law in every province, and it's proclaimed to the entire kingdom that all Jews, young and old, men and women, and children, should be annihilated, and the property should be turned over to those that destroy them. And so Haman here has the worst of intentions. Haman's political policy is predicated on the fact that he wants to destroy an entire people group. And then there's money involved here. 
which, as we know, can continue to be such a complicating force in our politics today, can it? People say, follow the money. And that's part of what makes this issue in particular so complicated. And while the whole city is thrown into confusion, Haman and Xerxes sit down for a feast. But that's not the end of the story, thank goodness. Esther 4, verses 1 through 9, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on a sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came she told, and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hassanth, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hassanth went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had proposed to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Haxanth went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And of course... Esther responded, of course I'll help. Absolutely. I'm ready. That's not what happened. Esther had to decide whether or not she was willing to take a risk. At first, it seems hopeless. She sends a message back and she tells Mordecai that she's not able to enter the king's chambers for 30 days. By then, it'll be too late. But Mordecai, he pushes back on Esther's feeling of helplessness. He says this in Esther 4. He says, then Mordecai told them in reply to Esther, do not think that yourself in the king's palace will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther's political plan here begins not with words and power, But with this, it says, Then Esther told them in reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's political plan, it begins with something that I think we often fail to recognize as being politically powerful, prayer and fasting. I don't know about you guys, but I often forget to pray sincerely for those in power, right? I I might pray for the ones I really like or the ones I hope get elected, but my prayer for the ones I don't agree with often sounds more like chastising than real praying. It sounds like, uh, God, let them get voted out and uh, let them get hit by lightning so they wake up and realize what's right, instead of, let them be astounded by you and your wisdom. Put Esther's in their path. Put Mordecai's in their path. Bring people to power that they'll listen to, that have God, good, God-honoring intentions. I often forget to do that. 
And so the question I think for all of us is, do we pray and fast for leaders and decisions? Do we pray and fast for leaders and decisions? Rick does. Rick's got us. He's leading the crowd, right? Praying and fasting, it might seem like such a small part in this grand scheme, but it's arguably the part of the story that leads to the resolution later in Esther. The author even begins to start setting up this dichotomy between feasting and fasting, that when the nation feasts, these terrible decisions are reached and political power plays are put in action that are going to lead to people's destruction. But when the people fast, this plan gets to be set in motion where God-honoring decisions that are hard won begin with this simple action. I think we're often really quick to jump to action. But are we sincerely praying and fasting before we move? In fact, the importance of praying and fasting when it comes to politics is later echoed in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, he says, First then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings may be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so praying and fasting, it seems to hold a power for God to open up the hearts, the eyes, the ears, and the minds of those in power towards understanding truth. So Esther calls for a fast. And do we do the same? This fast, it emboldens Esther with this place of privilege that she's able to use for the salvation of her people. And on the third day of the fast, Esther approaches the king. Now recall that just before this request, Esther highlighted that the motion that she was about to take, that she's taking now, is against the law. She even dramatically highlights the punishment for it. She says, if I perish, I perish. And so the question here, and there's a place to write in your notes, is are we willing to risk for the sake of God's people? Are we willing to risk for the sake of God's people? These are the questions that come before the questions for us. Do we trust that God goes before us to prepare people's hearts and minds to hear our pleas for those who are made in God's image? And can we boldly confront language and narratives like we talked about earlier in the series? Are we people who are willing to take a risk? Esther certainly was. Right? And in her request to the king, she makes an interesting request. She says that she wants a feast for Haman and Xerxes to be held later that day, which it should come to no surprise that Xerxes is like, yes, absolutely, we'll throw another feast. And at that feast, Esther again asks for another feast the next day. And on brand again, Xerxes says, absolutely, let's throw another feast. And this is where the story starts to take two paths. So first, after this feast, Haman, probably tired from all the feasting that happens in this kingdom, walks out to head home for the day. And Mordecai, back at the gate, he again, it actually, it makes the language even stronger. It says he doesn't tremble and bow before Haman. And so Haman's anger, again, it's kindled. And with the prompting of his wife and his friends, he hatches a plan to kill Mordecai. And so we start to see this effect taking place, though, that prayer and fasting and being risky has. And in that same night where Haman's at home hatching a plan to kill Mordecai, Esther 6 says that Xerxes is having trouble sleeping. He's having trouble sleeping. 
So he calls in his attendant to read the book of the history of his reign, which seems like a weird choice, but any of you who have ever taken a history class probably know that's actually pretty good bedtime material. He calls in his attendant and he says, read the book of the history of my reign to me. And as they read the book, Xerxes discovers that Mordecai had uncovered a plot to kill Xerxes, therefore saving his life. Here's the truth. The truth is that it would seem as if the more we fast and pray and the more we engage the way scripture tells us to, the more we start to see coincidences that just can't be explained. Right? The more we start to see coincidences that just can't be explained. So around the same time that Haman's heart is being hardened, Xerxes' heart is being softened, and just as Haman is plotting a death, Xerxes is plotting a reward. Not knowing what's transpired, Xerxes, he calls for Haman to come in, and he asks Haman, he says, what should be done to a faithful man in my kingdom? And Haman says, surely he means me. And so he responds, well, a faithful man in your kingdom, he should be given a royal robe and a horse, and he should be honored publicly. And Mordecai receives his reward. Not only does Mordecai get honored, but later that day at the banquet, Esther reveals Haman's plot. This is in Esther 7, starting in verse 3. It says, and Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have kept silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with loss to the king. Then king... The Ahasuerus really means Xerxes. They're the same thing. He says to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he that has dared to do this? And Esther says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. It says, and Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Haman, in a plot twist, ends up being impaled on the same post he prepared for Mordecai. And the decree goes out to the Jews for the defense of their lives, saving their entire lineage and resulting in the festival of Purim, which is still celebrated today in Jewish communities. Throughout this wild story, this one truth emerges. And it's this, that God-honoring political engagement has the power to shape the future. God-honoring political engagement has the power to shape the future. Our engagement, it's not meaningless. And as much as we would like sometimes to abdicate it for the hope that one day everything will be set right, we can't. And the invitation is not, hear me out, to, to elevate our politics over our faith. But it's to work out of our faith for the care of those who bear the image of God. And to recognize that our small decisions matter in the grand kingdom of God. Even our decisions to pray for our leaders and fast for decisions, to advocate for fair and just policies, to vote and to engage in our political systems. Tim Keller wrote an article recently for the New York Times and he put it this way. He said, what should the role of Christians in politics be? More people than ever are asking that question. Christians cannot pretend that they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. 
American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because it was what we would now call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political. The Bible shows believers as holding important posts in pagan government. Think of Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament. Christians should be involved politically as a way of loving our neighbors, whether they believe as we do or not. To work for better public schools or for a justice system that's not weighted against the poor, to end racial segregation, requires political engagement. Christians have done these things in the past, and they should continue to do so. Nevertheless, we start to find, many of us, that we don't quite fit neatly into a two-party system. And so we become, like Esther, strange people who don't quite fit perfectly in one box or the other. But we're called and compelled by Scripture to advocate for our neighbors and our communities and our country and our world. And so as we do it, we find these principles at play. The first is this, that Christian engagement in politics is both and. Christian engagement in politics is both and. It's both care and love for our neighbor and a belief in law and justice. The Evangelical Immigration Roundtable recently put out a resolution that I think encapsulates this idea of being both and when it comes to this issue so well. They said this, they said, as evangelical Christians, our approach to immigration policy is driven by biblical principles. We believe that each person is made in God's image and so should be treated humanely. That God has ordained the role of civil government, including the responsibility to protect the safety of citizens, maintain order, and respect the rule of law, which is diminished when laws are violated without consequence. That because God created the family unit, government should not violate the unit of the family, except in the rarest of circumstances. That God is concerned with the well-being of those who are vulnerable, including the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And it is appropriate for citizens to encourage our government to treat these vulnerable groups with fairness and compassion. And that God delights in redemption when those who have violated the law are able to be restored. Our politics as Christians, it often walks this nuanced gray area perhaps siding with one party in a part and another in part, able to move from one table to the other because we see the need for both parts to be true, holding to results versus rhetoric. And as we move and have these discussions, we also see this truth in Esther, that Christian engagement in politics is marked by truth and tact. Truth and tact. Esther is both honest about the reality facing her people and tactful in her presentation as she advocates for them. She is, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, she's as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so it is with us. Our words, our Facebook posts, our tweets, and even our Thanksgiving discussions about politics, it should look different as people who claim Christ. It should look different. We should be both honest about the reality, even powerful in the way that we present it, but tactful, kind, and grace-filled, patient, loving, and honoring. In a subject that's often heated, we should be aiming to bring calm. In one that's divided, we should be seeking to bridge gaps. In one that's sensationalized, we should be honest. In doing so, we should aim to speak not with scripture as support, but as the basis for what we believe. And that's the next point on your talk sheet. Christian engagement in politics is not proof-texted, but gospel-driven. 
Our passion for political policies, it doesn't emerge from our passions, where we furiously then try to find a text that fits, but instead it's born from the word as people of the word. The Stranger, a film that we recommended, said that we often arrive at our political decisions on issues like abortion or family values or the environment with scripture as our basis. But our political discussions around issues like immigration often begin with politics. And how different would it be if instead we took what we've learned over these past six weeks and we use that as foundational for how we understand this issue? I believe, like many other Christian voices in this conversation, that God-honoring, Bible-engaged Christians can faithfully disagree on political specifics. On political specifics. But here are some things that I think we can all agree on as Christians. The first is this, and I didn't put this on your note sheet, but if you have space, I'd encourage you to write these three down. That we should honor the lives and stories of immigrants and refugees. We do this by not using dehumanizing language, by not grouping every immigration story together, and by taking the time to hear and truly listen to the stories of people in our midst. The second is this. That there should be a clear, consistent pathway for legally immigrating to our country or applying as a refugee. And I think we've learned over these past few weeks just how complicated it is because the pathway isn't clear. And it's not as easy as it seems like it might be to immigrate or to come in as a refugee. And so there should be a clear, consistent pathway. And the third is this. That our nation should be generous as able. Remembering our own heritage as a nation of immigrants. Could you imagine how different our world would be if we engaged in this issue well? If we truly prayed and we fasted for our political leaders and the decisions that they make. And if we didn't abdicate our responsibility and our, and our opportunities to advocate on the behalf of God's people, but we were instead willing to risk. And if we recognized the complexity of this issue, but we arrived at our decisions out of scripture, we have an opportunity to be strange people in this strange land, and what a privilege it is for us to be able to bear that complexity today. In the aftermath of the photo that emerged of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his two-year-old daughter, Valeria, on the shores of the Rio Grande, Christianity Today, they, they called up some of the top Christian leaders, and they asked them to respond to the photo. And Max Lucado said this. He said, we want to look away, but let's not. Let's not turn away. Let's not return too quickly to summer activities. Let's let these reports and these images prompt the deepest form of prayer. Let's groan. The groan is the vernacular of pain, the chosen tongue of despair. When there are no words, these are the words. When prayer won't come, these will have to do. Sunnier times hear nicer, more poetic petitions, but stormy times generate mournful sounds of sadness, fear, and dread. These sounds, these unadorned petitions of darkness, they find their ways to the ears of God. Why? Because they're entrusted into the care of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, and because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, We do not know how to pray as we ought. The Spirit does, and the Spirit will. We lament the desperate conditions of immigrant families. We lament the impossible assignment given to Border Patrol and officials. 
We lament the inability to find civil solutions. Let us pray for God-breathed solutions. Lord, please help us. He said we need to act, help, and rescue, but first we need prayerful empathy. This is a mess, a humanitarian, heartbreaking mess. And we're wondering what can be done, so let us do what we are called to do. Let us pray, let's lament, and let's groan. You see, we need to act. We need to act. But first, we need prayerful empathy. And so as we end this series, let's pray. And let's pray in particular for people in positions of power and for us as we work in and within our political systems, for God's glory and our neighbor's good. So let's pray. God, thank you that you invite us into this process. God, thank you that you don't invite us to just set aside, uh, set aside our, our responsibilities now for the hope of the kingdom that you're bringing where everything will be set right. But thank you that you invite us now to engage. And so God, would you speak for us the words we can't? God, as we lament, as we ask for your help, as we pray for your guidance, would you go before us? And God, we lift up our leaders of our country, as difficult as that sometimes is. God, we lift up them and ask that you would help them to make wise decisions. God, would you be with them? Would you have Esther's and Mordecai in their courts that are helping them to reach decisions that are just for all of God's people? And so, God, would you go before us? Would you go before us as we go to Thanksgiving dinner conversations? Would we bear your name well when we talk about politics? God, would we be bridge builders? Would we bring clarity and compassion into a conversation that's difficult? And then would you help us to know how we would act individually? And so God, be with us as we close out this series. That this series wouldn't end our engagement, but that it would spur us on more and more to love you and love our neighbor. In name we pray. Amen.